Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, I have um, the absolute honor and pleasure and privilege of having with me um, you know, who I consider not only to be uh, my mentor, but also um, a friend. Um, we have with us uh, Dr. Srihari Naidu. Uh, Dr. Naidu is a professor, a tenured professor of medicine at New York Medical College. He is the director of the cardiac cath labs at Westchester Medical Center. He's also the director of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center of Excellence at Westchester Medical Center, um, you know, one of very few centers of excellence uh, across the country. And he's held several uh, leadership positions um, at um, you know, societies like the Society of Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions. Um, so once again, it's my absolute honor and privilege um, of having on the show uh, Dr. Naidu. Dr. Naidu, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ankur. Thanks for having me here. I'm very honored to be on the call with you. I think I followed your uh, relatively shorter career than mine of uh, the past uh, half decade or so, and uh, honored to be on this call. Um, I think uh, the audience can benefit from just sort of a open discussion between me and you on a lot of, uh, a lot of ideas and avenues in mentorship and leadership. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I think in part, the, the reason for this call, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, also the feedback that we've received from a lot of the listenership and audience that you know, we um, obviously are physicians and, and scientists and, and researchers, and we spend um, a lot of our, our time, you know, taking care of patients or advancing the field, which we love to do. Um, but we also interact with colleagues um, and seniors and allied healthcare professionals and, you know, healthcare providers is a, is a very broad term. Um, and, you know, we do spend a lot of our, our time, a lot of our professional time in non-professional, you know, non, I shouldn't say non-professional, but non-academic or non-science professional activities, if you will, uh, for lack of a better word. And I, I think, um, you know, that requires a lot of mentoring. It requires, uh, you know, emotional intelligence. It requires uh, interpersonal skills. And, and you know, Nobody seems to, there isn't a platform, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody talks about it, but there isn't a platform for discussing these issues openly. And, you know, that's where, you know, uh, you know we hope, you know, at least I hope, you know, we can fill that void. Um, so uh, thank you again for your time. Uh, I, I appreciate how busy you are. Um, but I, I want to start the conversation by, uh, you know, asking you as to, you know, how you got where you are. Uh, you know, because certainly you are one of the luminaries in the field. And I think a lot of early career people like myself will, will benefit from just listening to your journey and how you got there. 
Yeah, so first of all, hopefully I can shed some light on that. I, I, the first statement I would make is that, you know, those of us who have, I guess, uh, gotten to a stage where other people look at us as, uh, as individuals that they want to emulate or, or respect or, uh, you know, move towards, I think none of us really got to this stage uh, anticipating that or uh, ultimately even realizing that we're at that stage. We just continue to keep on moving forward, trying to do what we're passionate about. I, I think... You know, there's a lot in that question that you asked, but most of it revolves around understanding your own abilities, understanding what you like to do, um, how you can marry individual passions with individual skill sets and talents, and a, an honest assessment of what your skill sets and talents are. I think, uh, you know, and that's sort of a trial and error. You do things and uh, you see where they go. And one of the tricks of the trade really is to do multiple things and see which ones are successful. I oftentimes tell people, you know, they see that I've done well in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, encouraged any shock, uh, maybe PFO, but they haven't seen other things that I maybe have dabbled in to some extent. I ran the MitraGlip program and other things. I think I did a good job clinically there, but I certainly am not a leader in the field in those aspects. And I think people look back and say, wow, how come everything he touches is a leader in? Well, it's not always the case. It's just that you have multiple uh, buns in the oven, so to speak, and you look at the landscape, you see what you're doing, you see where you can lead. Uh, you get the positive feedback uh, based on the achievements you have, and you keep moving on the ones that are going the furthest. And then before you know it, you're sort of a leader in that field. So let me take a step back and just say, uh, you know, like all of you guys, I, I don't think I was all that serious in college. I think uh, just today we did the whole tweet thing where we talked about a lot of random things that we were interested in, and I had a lot of things that had nothing to do with medicine in that tweet, from uh, comic books to uh, on paintball teams, singing a cappella, and so you can get an idea that I wasn't uh, very serious about academics for the you know, first half of my life, I guess, until, until probably medical school, where I think I got passionate about it. I think before that, I just felt I wanted to do medicine, but it was a little bit more nebulous. Um, I was good at science and math, obviously, and I have uh, parents who are in the field just like you do, Anker, and you can yeah. see that you want to be someone who can contribute in that way and uh, be kind of beloved by your patients if you're lucky and make a difference to people's lives. But then somewhere in medical school and uh, residency and fellowship, I think I went on a different path, which is that somewhere I got inspired. And I think that's where, that's where mentorship comes from. It comes from being in institutions, perhaps, that uh, tell you that you can be a leader and that people who come before you have done amazing things, so why not you? It comes from individuals that you meet along the way who you relate to in a very... Uh, non-medical way, but then you realize, wow, if we're so similar in these ways, maybe, maybe I can do a lot of major things like, uh, and impactful things that this guy did because he's not some you know freak of nature who does amazing things. He's a regular guy who just followed his dreams and passions, and maybe I can do that. And that's where mentorship comes in. So there's a mentorship where it's sort of, there are people out there, you're like, I, I think I can do what they're doing in terms of uh, I can be passionate about something. I can really... Uh, Know, work hard and then there's the more bread and butter mentorship which is here's this paper now let me help you write it let me tell you how to put a story together so you get something published um, these are relationships you have to work on these are problems you have with relating to people uh, these are your inner demons in terms of personality traits that get in the way um, and these are things you're going to be working on your entire life so that you uh, avoid those pitfalls and i'll tell you as a 
you consider a leader in the field, um, I have, uh, I consider traits of my own that I will always be fighting against so I don't step into my own shit, for lack of a better word. I know where I fail. And even to this day, it's hard for me not to fail in those ways. So I'm actively, consciously making sure that I don't fall into, into pitfalls that my personality will sometimes drag me into. So I think that's another lesson people need to learn. They need to be very self-aware of uh, how people perceive them. Um, and uh, use that information not as something that you're upset about, but use it as a weapon uh, so that you can anticipate how you're going to be perceived and adjust accordingly before that happens. So I think that's sort of our lifelong learning. learning. Um, so, you know, I went to a fellowship at Penn. Um, I did a, a couple of years at Cornell. And I think, uh, as I think some leaders uh, have the problem with, uh, I had the same problem, which is that I got a little disgruntled with not being in a position where I could really run my own, uh, run my own uh, fortunes and, and, uh, and move at my own pace. So I, I left Cornell after two and a half years. It's a wonderful place. I have fond memories, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, being an institution that you sort of had to take your time and, and eventually things will come to you. I am definitely more the kind of person that I, I know what I want to do and I think I can do it. Uh, I just need um, people to support me in that regard. So I went out and took my first uh, leadership job running the cardiac cath lab at Winthrop in Long Island. During that stint, I learned a, a lot of lessons. One is that when you go to a place where you're the youngest person uh, running uh, a bunch of interventional cardiologists who are much older, much wiser, and much more experienced than you. You have to learn very quickly that, okay, maybe you have some skill sets and you're well-trained, but there's a lot of experience there and people need to be treated properly. So I learned very quickly over the first five years how to, how to deal with people, how to understand their perceptions, um, how to live into my own shoes, so to speak, <coughs> and build that reputation. I also learned how to, how to work with private Positions, but there is a very open lab, and 80% of the volume, or 70% of the volume is a non-academic faculty. So I learned a lot about uh, prior practice, before the captured practice models. I spent a lot of my time on the road, uh, uh, dinners with referring physicians, understanding what they want, how to compete with the other big hospitals on Long Island and get their business at Winthrop, and really try to make it a powerhouse. And during that time, I also moved from a coronary institution to a coronary structural institution and helped my colleagues. Uh, bring a lot of the structural and obviously all the structural programs uh, to our institution. I think at one time, Sky did a uh, census document on the only programs that had structural. There was only like five or eight programs in the country, one of which was Winthrop at the time that was offering a fellowship. From there, I uh, also built a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy center and out of a small passion I had, we can talk a little bit more about that because that is something that I think people may want to learn about, not necessarily about HCM, but rather how to take something that others perceive as small and potentially not impactful in the long run and make it into a, uh, a major field and at the same time grow the field nationally so that the niche that you've developed actually becomes an important niche that other people are thankful that you did so. Um, so we can talk a lot more about that. Uh, from there, I came to Westchester Medical Center and York Medical College about three years ago, uh, where they promised and have delivered on uh, a lot of resources, uh, both in the cath lab and in the HCM program. I have a full staff, two coordinators, a nurse practitioner, hiring medical assistant, and obviously the full breadth of services, including heart transplant, pediatrics, and genetic testing and counseling. 
And then in the cath lab, we built uh, a whole new ambulatory care center with two new cath labs, six, six uh, brand new cath labs, inpatient lab, all state-of-the-art uh, sort of contract with Phillips, all done in one big swoop. Um, so really a beautiful uh, situation in terms of our patient experience uh, for, for that regard. So maybe I'll stop there for a moment because I think that you've got five to eight minutes of the time and we haven't gotten into international stuff, but maybe uh, if you want to reflect on that, let me know any other questions. Uh, sure. Now, you know, you've touched upon, you know, some really incredible concepts, which, you know, I really would want to take a deep dive into. I think that the first one, which um, comes naturally as a question um, for an interviewer, um, is um, just explain to us the process of self-awareness and just explain to us how you, uh, you know, realize, you know, things or tasks that you're good at um, and tasks right. that, that you're not good at and how you, how do you do that self-talk? How do you judge yourself? How do you examine yourself? Uh, and how do you give yourself yeah. a report card um, so that you, you become more aware of your natural talents and abilities and can harness them and focus yeah. on them rather than, because, you know, the brain naturally will focus on what's negative. So uh, I think to be, to have the ability to switch that, that focus and just focus on your own natural talents and abilities because each one of us you know has a superhero inside each one there's a superhero inside each one of us is what robin sharma says someone is a spiritual guru i follow how how did you do that early on in your career because you i mean you had exceptional background so how did you yeah, so i think um yeah i think you have to listen to people and you have to see uh how you, how people respond to you so let's talk about the bread and butter type stuff. So can you write a paper? Can, is your writing skills getting better and better? Can you reach the deadline that you set for yourself to get the papers in? That's a skill set that you either uh, realize you're getting better at or you're not. And typically, you'll, you'll also hear from others. So as time goes by, I started hearing that I'm a good editor, that uh, people started sending me things to review, not even during the journals, but rather they want my eyes on it. And, uh, and, and I think I realized that people like my writing style, they like the fact that I can see what's not in the paper that should be in a paper rather than what's just in a paper. And believe it or not, I even had industry colleagues uh, send me things uh, on the side, uh, not as a job, but before they submitted to the FDA, for example, or they, before they submitted a release about a trial, I would oftentimes be someone that they would submit it to me confidentially just to look at to make sure they're not missing something. And so you get the idea from people that they really value your insight as a writer. So I would tell people that, look, I learned to write from people at, at Penn. Dr. Bob Lensky, I credit my, uh, as one of my mentors at University of Pennsylvania, who basically back and forth would edit my papers. And I'm sure people do that to you, Arthur, as well. And this is back in the day with pencils, by the way. Yeah. And they would photocopy it and they send it back to me and I'd look at what they circled and where they moved things and I started learning how things flow better. And part of that is understanding not what you want to write, but what somebody wants to hear. And can you actually bridge that with your data? So do you have the data that puts out there what people actually want to hear? And that's that's the key about writing. And then the, the bread and bolt, the nuts and bolts of it really is can you meet a deadline? Uh, can you inspire people to work with you on it? Uh, can you submit it in, including the cover letters, and pitch it in a way 
that people are anticipating it, looking for it, uh, understand how it fits into the landscape so that it's an incremental value on top of the existing literature, not just a not, not just a me too type of uh, statement. Uh, and that's hard. And so if you see that you're gradually getting better and you get the positive reinforcement about it, then you need to keep doing it. And that's what that's that would be somebody who basically now you can go on the academic track because bottom line is you can't get tenured professor if you don't like right. So that's the number one thing. The other aspects of leadership, uh, you'll also uh, see how you do. So let's talk about speaking. So public speaking, uh, I didn't know how it'd be as a speaker. In Ankara, I realized that you're a singer and I'm a singer too. Uh, I think a lot of the presentation skills have to do with stage fright and uh, what do you do when you're up on the podium. And I think I credit the fact that I uh, sang a cappella for many years with the fact that I have to get up in front of an audience. Other people don't have that, and they didn't play in a band, they didn't do anything that, that required them to do that. But first thing for speaking is to get over that fear. The second thing for speaking is, again, to have content that your audience wants to hear, not what you want to say. And then also, you don't want to have too many points. For a 10-minute presentation, there may only be three points, three real points. You can chalk four your slides up into all kinds of things at the end of the day. They're only going to remember three things, so it's much better to keep it simple and straightforward. Ignore a lot of things. Stop trying to prove that you have so many things you can teach people, and just teach them three things. <clears throat> and again, I was informed by other people that I was a good speaker. How do you figure that out? Well, industry comes after you to speak. Um, other people will ask you to speak at conferences. You may get some regional events to speak. Um, you will start getting things that are in your wheelhouse as opposed to random things. So, for example. Somewhere around four or five years out, I started only getting hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and shock and, and uh, things that I was really uh, a PFO and things like that. I mean, I remember at TCT, I was always doing PFO and alcohol ablation. That was my thing. And so then you realize that people have associated with you with that and, and realize you're a good presenter. Um, so you have to work on it. Presentation skills, I think, are something that anybody can do if they get over the stage right and they're disciplined about uh, about working hard at it. So, you know, I gave some advice to someone uh, yesterday that they should uh, videotape it or even just audio tape it, make sure they're not going through too fast. Uh, one of the keys is that, you know, we've looked for a presentation a hundred times that the audience just sees it once. So they need to digest every single thing you say. You shouldn't be speeding through it. Um, so let me turn on to the things that are that you're not good at. So I realized that, uh, I'll tell you what I'm not so good at. I think I have trouble relating directly to my uh, my peers sometimes. So I think uh, I was taught by um, one of my really dear friends, Steve Green, and I'm gonna mention people because I think they are great mentors for me. Sure. He uh, was the chief at North Shore Hospital. Um, and he came over to Winthrop for a few years and, and he became one of my really good friends to this day. Um, and we were talking, and he says that most people have uh, the ability to inspire those below them, uh, not, or they can inspire and relate to people at their level, or, they can, or they're really well-cherished by those that uh, are on top of them, their bosses. But it's very few people, almost nobody, who can relate to all three. And so it's okay to not be good at one of them. You have to work at that. So I learned long ago that I was very good with uh, the staff, like you mentioned before, nurses, techs, uh, the people, who, uh, the janitors, the doormen, everybody like that. I'm a, 
I'm a man of the people. I can, I, I love the simple things in life. I talk about all kinds of things. I like basketball, like uh, music. So I relate to people very, very well. And to be honest, I, in many respects, I get a lot out of that, those relationships because um, it's who I really am. And then, uh, then there's the, uh, the bosses. They seem to uh, be very happy too, in general, usually. Because I do what I say, and I usually exceed expectations in terms of business development um, and bringing in the, the, the patients that need to be brought in, form development, and those kinds of things. And uh, the key for that relationship is to make sure that it's very clear that none of that would happen without uh, leadership on top of you that's been uh, A, supportive, and B, not too micromanaging. And so I'm always very... Uh, very grateful of that and so that comes through and typically that level is never uh, upset the level that's hardest and it's probably hardest for those of us in leadership positions is the peers by definition you're not any better in international cardiology everybody else everybody's about the same right you're trying to get the same level but you have a leadership position so it, it, it makes it hard to um, advise and, uh, and lead and, uh, and build a team when uh, you're just one of the people and so there's always a perception that you may feel over and above those who you really know are just uh, at your same level, but that perception has to be managed. And that perception can cause a lot of antagonism, that perception can cause a lot of hurt feelings, and that perception can cause a lot of uh, people to feel like uh, inferior, uh, either in your presence or in your facility. And so that's an area that you and me and other people who are becoming leaders nationally have to work on because whether or not we act that way at our hospital, because many people will see us that way through our other roles, the best way to handle that is really to be uh, very clear that you're just one of the team when you're there. Sure, the administrative thing comes to you, but you do things by consensus, and when there isn't a consensus, you leave, um, and you the kind of the tiebreaker to make sure that uh, that your vision is also getting through, but that people's input is there and they're respected. And we can talk a lot more about that. I'll tell you how um, I got around that. I think I've got around that. What I try to do in my labs is find things for everybody where they are better than everybody else. And not because I made them better than everybody else, because they actually are better than everybody else in those things. So, for example, I may lead the alcohol ablation at Hokum. Okay, I'm better at that than everybody else. But we have other people who are way better at radial, complex radial interventions than me. Other people who do CTOs that I don't do. Other people who do the valve programs that I don't do anymore. Um, other people who uh, do um, the STEMI program. So, you empower people by giving them things that they're really good at. And uh, by doing that, everybody can walk around very uh, content and satisfied in their job as they should. So maybe I'll stop a little bit there because uh, I can go on and on, but I think there's a lot of lessons already in what I see. Yeah, you know, the, the descriptions you've given are excellent uh, and, and also very applicable to, you know, our daily lives. I mean, I can see how perception, you know, perception is reality. Um, and... Uh, perceptions about people could be false, you know, because people are seeing you from a distance. People, um, it's actually very easy to, to see people online. Um, you know, I've heard comments on, uh, you know, my over magnanimous online presence. And, uh, you know, I've sort of, you know, tried to break that perception, you know, because 
you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, some of my friends have told me very, um, you know, very honestly that, you know, you have an over magnanimous presence online, but, you know, it sort of breaks almost instantly when, you know, someone starts talking to you. Um, and, you know, I've, I've become self-aware of that, of that presence. And it, it has been antagonistic to me, um, than, than helpful to me, um, you know, in, in, in the short early career phase that I've had. And, you know, I, I can, you know, how, and I'm, I'm not that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the magnanimity that perhaps the, the online presence demonstrates, uh, you know, and people who work with me can, will, will tell you that. Um, but it's, it's been, it's been a, it's been a huge lesson for me in person as well. Um, you know, to, to sort of neutralize that or negate that. And, you know, as an extension to, to this, to this fact, because, you know, I'm sure a lot of early career people are going through this and I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're sabotaging yourself. And this is a, a, a discussion that a very honest discussion that I had with Dr. Bhatt, you know, who's, uh, who's been a great mentor to me. Um, and, you know, he, you know, he, he just, um, he, you know, walked me through it. Uh, you know, again, you know, it was time for me to pick up the phone and, and call him, you know, and seek, seek help um, and seek advice. Um, but I think, you know, what, what we should discuss yeah. about now, and I'm going to pull out the tweet, you know, which you mentioned in anticipation of this episode, um, is, you know, making a mark and striking a balance, you know, just on this issue particularly, because it's, you know, with access to social media, you know, it's, um, you can, you can create a content and you can, you know, you can be out there, uh, but, 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 in, but you have to sort of replicate that also in your performance at work and with colleagues and with, with allied healthcare professionals. Uh, I mean, you have to be a, right. you have to be good at your role uh, in your job. Um, so how do how do you balance yeah, making so a mark? Say, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say that your first job is obviously family. Um, and we can talk more about the work-life balance uh, too. But the second job really is your, your home institution. Your home institution has to be happy. That is your first job. None of the national stuff happens if you have to worry about your back, which is what's going on at work. This is why the first few years of a job, uh, you're not a candidate for the ELM program, the Emergency Leader Methods Runs. So by the first few years of a job, you need to put your head down, show people that you can really work, show people that you have skills, show people that you can build, and then get things almost on a little bit towards autopilot before you go on the national uh, circuit. Also because if your reputation nationally is bigger than your reputation locally, I believe you will fail because it's not credible. So I think your reputation at your institution and the local area, especially with patients and especially with your colleagues in terms of if you are becoming a go-to person for certain things, has to come first, because if you lose that, then no matter how far you get nationally, it, it won't be justifiable or legitimate in the eyes of people looking in. And then um, people will see that everything you're writing is basically for a developing reputation that is false. And so ultimately, please make sure, everybody listening, that you work very hard at keeping your technical skills up, you're seen as somebody who has good hands, or judgment, or whatever it is that you're seeing, form building, whatever it is your role is, not everybody has everything. Whatever it is you're gonna go out and talk about, 
make sure it's authentic and that you really can back that up. That's number one. Number two, I think in the age of uh, social media, you're right. You can easily put together a list of accomplishments out there. And I do this. My social media is primarily for uh, what I guess we consider marketing and to get the word out both about things that I'm doing, things that I'm interested in, uh, developing fields, like for example, the Sky Shock course. I want people aware of it, coming to it, the, uh, uh, new publications, things that are happening in alcohol ablation or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But you're right. It can be perceived as uh, self-promoting uh, in a very, very big way. So the second lesson is that whatever you promote on your social media, um, the amount of promotion should be less than what, you, what most people consider is justified. In other words, don't just say things as your own opinion and just don't talk for talk's sake, but put things out there that are legitimate. Don't just talk about alcohol ablation, but if you have a new study that came out about it, put that out there. Something that's been peer-reviewed, that's, that's authentic, that's a true accomplishment, a publication, a press release, a story about a patient, an upcoming conference that you're speaking to. Everything should be things that other people already decided is authentic and worth putting out. And you're just the carrier of that information. So if you always have that rule, you won't be seen, seen like you're just a loud person in the room and, every, and anybody who's just louder than you could drown you out. It's not like that. It's basically um, you're putting out information that is already out, should be out, and, uh, and congratulations, that's something that you've been able to push. So that's number two. The third thing I'll say is that don't be scared of putting out your, the real you. Uh, you know what they say, words and all. In other words, put out things about you as a person, about your family a little bit, you know, within, within reason, how you struck a work-life balance. Get your personality out there uh, and think that's very helpful to, to balance out the perception that comes from being very uh, ambitious. So there's ambition that is for ambitious sake, but then there's ambition that's born out of passion and altruism and a desire to make a mark like people like Eugene Brunwald. There are people who still want to actually make a mark for really pushing the field forward. And you should try to develop the perception that that's the reason you're doing it. And I've always told people in my career that, you know, I didn't know I was going to be academic. I said, I'm just going to go do it as far as I can. And I guess I'll just ride the wave until nobody wants to hear about me anymore, what I'm doing. And I guess I say that to myself uh, every year. And then it keeps going, which, which in my mind means that what I'm doing is relevant. Not necessarily that I'm relevant, but what I'm doing is relevant. And you always have to keep that first, that what you're doing, uh, is it worthy of putting out there? Not who you are, but what you are. So those are kind of uh, some of the things I'll say. I'll also say that you're a few years out and you've done a lot. Uh, you don't, haven't really had the time to build a lot of programs in your place. You haven't had the time to touch thousands of patients' lives. You haven't had the time to build... Uh, you know, to follow through on all these things. So many people grow into their reputation. And what I would challenge you with is that if people think that uh, you're a little precocious at doing things early like I was, and like many people on this call might be doing, grow into it. Grow into the person who deserves that reputation uh, for legitimate reasons. And so be very self-reflective of that. 
uh, and find out when you've actually accomplished that so that people feel like you're no longer someone ambitious and just speaking loudly, but someone who deserves the respect, admiration um, that, uh, that you're now given. Yeah, no, thank you for all, all that you've said. You know, this is, this is so important, uh, you know, not only for me to listen, but also for, for our audience and for, for the listenership to listen. Uh, you know, because, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, particularly um, the, the current generation fellows in training or, you know, my colleagues, um, you know, with the advent of social media, and obviously we are natural adopters of social media, uh, I, I think. Uh, and then, you know, there are some um, like yourself and, you know, and like Dr. Bhatt and, and Dr. Stone and, and, you know, like Ajay, um, you know, several who've actually taken on social media very well. Um, but there are many who haven't. And, you know, there's a, there's a disconnect and, you know, there is um, a perception of you which is out there and then you're not that perception. And then you, you sort of struggle with that relationship. So I think what you've, what you've said, what you've eloquently described is going to be of help to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, including myself you know, fellows in training, uh, you know, colleagues were early career uh, would be, um, uh, you know, a benchmark conversation uh, is, is what I, what I feel. So thank you so much. So, so work on, work on every relationship. So your colleagues and people you meet at the conferences should get to know you as a, as a person and, and realize that you're a super nice guy. I mean, you, I mean, everybody on this call is a super nice guy. If you are a girl or a woman, um, and you're also somebody who is doing all these things, but the, but your heart is in the right place and you're easy to, to, willing to give help, um, work on those relationships uh, so that your best advertisement is the people who have interacted with you on a personal level say, oh, yeah, he, he does all those things, but he's a super nice guy and he's super helpful in helping on this, maybe, or C. Um, and uh, also the patients. I mean, honestly, you can go online and it's pretty quick to see who's getting those employers, those health degrees are not, I wouldn't hang my hat on it, but if you have four or five stars most of the time, Chances are you're a pretty decent guy uh, or person because uh, patients know, uh, you know, patients <laughs> patients know if the person is uh, humble and is uh, working hard and really puts their lives first. And so uh, work on those relationships. Make sure your, your patients are your biggest advocate. You know, when I left Winthrop, um, I came to uh, Westchester, but I didn't abandon my patients. I, I kept my privileges at Winthrop and I kept an office on Long Island that one of my uh, uh, one of my uh, one of the things that I made sure that whichever hospital I was going to would do is I, I said I have to open up office in Long Island for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients on Long Island that I've been serving for ten years, and uh, all those patients stayed with me, every single one, and that paid that office, which I only see patients one day a week, is seeing about twenty five patients that day, and I told Kathleen the Kathleen up there that morning for a couple of patients that came over and. I think uh, they see that I'm loyal to them and they're loyal to me. Those yeah. patients come yeah. 45 an hour Westchester for their procedures, be it an MRI or surgery or whatnot. Some of them from out east in Stony Brook come all the way to Westchester for their for the, the major things in their hypertrophic cardiomyopathy care. And so I know that uh, at the end of the day, I'm most proud of the fact that patients really trust me. And, uh, and I very much... Uh, you know, I'm very loyal to them because of that. Um, and and you know, they've been with me longer than my colleagues at the different hospitals, right? They, they were with me forever. 
So um, you know, that's what also keeps us very, very humble and also uh, keeps us uh, you know, a regular doc. So I would say, that, you know, just to go back, um, even if people might have a perception of you that's high and mighty, the truth is the truth. And uh, it won't hide from your patients and from people who you've actually touched. And those people eventually will outnumber the people out there who have a negative perception of you. No, I, I agree. You know, I, um, you know, my, I'm still, I'm still, this is the third year. This is my third year out. I've been out for two years um, and I've, um, you know, changed institutions and, you know, my, my patients from the previous institution have followed me uh, to the current institution, um, which, you know, I was, was something I was, you know, very, very um, happy about uh, and something that I, uh, that I am extremely grateful for to my patients. And, um, you know, I, I haven't had the opportunity to build, um, you know, a, um, a practice, if you will, you know, because I'm still early on in, in my career. But it's something that I aspire to do. So, you know, y- your story of, you know, you following your patients back to Winthrop and still seeing them uh, and, you know, having that relationship with them is, is something to aspire for for every early career physician, which is, I think, a great segue for us to talk about the Elm program from, from Sky. Um, as you know, I was an, I was an applicant um, and I, I got a wonderful, wonderful note, you know, both from you and Matt Daniels uh, about how uh, closely my application was looked at. Uh, and I ended up not getting the position, but, you know, I, which is fine. You know, there's all, there's always, there's going to be plenty of opportunities. Um, tell, you know, I just yeah, in, uh, in, inform us, uh, you know, talk to us about the, the mission of the ELM program. The ELM stands for Emerging Leader Mentorship Program. Um, and, you know, right. also, uh, you know, what was the, what's the mission? Who, whose idea was it? Because uh, I think it was a, it's a fantastic idea. I mean, I think, there are people, there's several people like me, several early career physicians like me who are looking for, you know, you're f- looking for people who can provide them with honest feedback, with focus, who can identify, you know, natural talents, you know, like you said earlier on in the conversation right. and then harness, harness those talents. Because, you know, I, I, I do think each one of us uh, has innate talent uh, that, that needs to be groomed and, and harnessed. So talk to us about that. I agree. So, yes, yeah, the ELM program started about, uh, the idea started about 10 years ago. Um, and it was uh, uh, my idea at the time. And I'll tell you, my history is that I, you know, I went from Cornell, which was a well-known place, to Winthrop, which was not a well-known place at the time. And when you go, uh, when you jump jobs, uh, especially when you jump to a relatively uh, smaller hospital, you can sometimes disappear. In fact, my uh, peers at Cornell, uh, I remember one distinctly that's saying that, oh you're, oh, you're leaving academics. So that's one statement that people say, and it's not an appropriate statement, but I bring it up as, a, as an example of how uh, people can sometimes demolish a career by sort of uh, telling you that you're not going to be able to do what, you're, what you want to do. And so I left and went to Winthrop, and I realized that uh, in, a, in some respects they're correct in that it is much harder to get recognized and to have the resources to have a successful national career when you're at a smaller institution, especially one that prioritizes clinical care and private practice. And so um, I remember that uh, I did have these uh, aspirations to do more, um, but I wasn't uh, uh, being... Uh, 
tapped on the shoulder, so to speak. I remember being a little disgruntled by uh, a program that the ACC had, which I think they still have, but it's not the same as it was before. But at the time, there was an emerging faculty program that was something that it was amazing, run by Nishimura and Pat O'Gara, so amazing mentors. But you had to be sort of uh, tapped to apply. And I remember thinking that there's nobody here at Winthrop who can tap. And so there's many people out there in the country that are not places that are quote unquote tappable. You don't have a mentor above you, like a Mike Gibson or a Deepak Bot, who can say, oh yeah, I want my junior person in there and they get in there. So I felt very strongly that, that was sort of a little bit too old boyish for me. And I said, well, you know what? Why not have a uh, program where anybody can apply? And even, and, uh, even if they're in prior practice or in academics, if they feel that they have the skill sets and the ambition um, and the talent to make a mark nationally in anything, why not apply? And then, um, and then let's see who you are. Because, because the people we don't know are out there are probably way outnumber the people we do know are out there. And also, I also realized that certainly within Sky, probably the majority of the leaders within Sky, at least at the time, came from private practice. Yeah. And I realized that a lot of the private practice people had a different edge, um, a little bit different business savvy, the leaders in private practice. Uh, Sometimes they even had a, a stronger personality that could uh, win over people. And these types of talents are neglected in academics oftentimes. And you usually don't get, this, get all these people to apply. So I pitched the idea um, to SCAI when Norm Linsky was uh, executive director to, um, to have a program where anybody can apply from around the country. You select 10 people. At the time it was 10, now it's 12. Uh, we do want to have at least half from prior practice and half from academics. And nowadays, everybody's attached to the hospital, but there's still certain people who want more private practice. Sure. Required groups than the, the tenure type uh, track uh, faculty. And, um, and then we take them through a process where they uh, get a lot of the other skill sets that they wouldn't have otherwise. Certainly, the people in private practice are not getting presentation skills, are not going to learn about how the FDA works, for example. So we, we decided to do that. And I think at the time, um, it was a it is a uh, disruptive idea, which is that we're not just going to, uh, A, we're not just going to uh, wait for people to present themselves to the society and work their way up over 10 years. We're going to find people a few years out and give them responsibilities right away as if they've already been successful. So that was pretty, uh, pretty radical because people who came before them had to wait 10, 15 years to get anything within the societies. And here we are saying that you get into this thing, we're going to give you some stuff to do right away, big stuff. And so I had to fight in the beginning uh, some of the hierarchy system in that, um, that it's not a cheat, so to speak. And that was one of the terms I heard. It's a cheat that the Elm firm could be conceived of as a cheat. That's all changed now. The perception, of course, now is that it's not. It's that these people are amazing people that we're thankful to have in the program. And so that reputation quickly changed from people that didn't deserve to be there to people that I can't, God, I can't believe what we would do without them. And so that took about you know six or seven years. Uh, and also as a side thing, I want to tell you that some of the most successful people did not get into the Alpharm. Manus Berlakis applied twice, didn't get in. And he's, a, he's amazing, obviously. Um, uh, and then other people got in after applying ones, like Herb Aronow. Um, yeah, who's amazing, Dimitri Feldman, amazing people. They didn't get the first time either. 
So uh, usually you need to have a certain amount of accomplishments with any power, and then most people get in after applying twice. So Ankur, I have high hopes for you uh, this next round, about a year from now, applying for the ELM program. Um, so anyway, so I, I think that people should apply to it. It is a it is a way to get recognized not only within Sky but within ACC and CRF because it is a partnership with all three organizations. Um, and new this year, in addition to the twelve, we also are uh, selecting about uh, another eighteen people in something called the Elm Circle of individuals that can come to the sessions, uh, but don't get all the uh, all, all the things that we give to the Elm Fellows, but they can come to the session and learn alongside uh, other leaders in, in international cardiology. Oh, yeah, no, that, that'll be terrific. Because, you know, I think, you know, from, from the emails that I received, I think, you know, this year was, was, was a record year for applicants. And, you know, it I'm, was. I'm not, not, not even sure how, you know, the selection committee picks. I mean, I think it's, it's a very hard task to, to pick, you know, 12 from, you know, almost 200 applicants, which is, and, you know, these are all, yep. these are all driven, accomplished, you know, go get our interventionalists, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I'm it sure. Is. And, and, uh, <laughs> it is very hard to be like some 12 people also, because, uh, unlike, um, another process, any other process, we're also trying to find leaders within the sky. And so we want a representation of leadership. That does mean that we're going to try to find, uh, make sure that we have representation pediatric interventional with both with genders with private practice and academics with outside the u.s and the u.s and you can see if you have 12 people uh it's going to be hard to get a representative sample which is why we got to we went up to 30 but even then 30 out of 200 of the, of the most uh, accomplished uh, individuals in international cardiology um you know it's, it's obviously a, a tough thing to get into um yes and you know so just for my own knowledge and i think it would be a natural question for you know, other applicants of the Elm program as well. Uh, the Elm Circle, is that something that's starting out this year or is that something that's going to start out with the next application cycle? No, it started this year. So there's another, so now the 12, we invited the next 18 um, to come to the session. So we're not paying for them to come and we're not putting them on uh, as faculty uh, as we do with the Elm Fellows. The Elm Fellows become faculty for ACC, uh, TCT and Sky. And they come to the six sessions, and there's other uh, lots of other opportunities. They have to write a they have to write a statement on their career goals with their mentor. They get assigned a mentor, uh, two mentors actually, one internal to Elm and one external, um, and uh, and then they have to live up to that over the next two years. And we present it, uh, and then they're assigned to committees and, uh, and other responsibilities. And then the Elm Circle really is that if they're going to be at any of the uh, ACC, Sky, or TCT, they are welcome to come. To the Elm sessions, so they get the, they get to come to the six Elm sessions um, and uh, participate as full Elm fellows for those sessions. So uh, that's what the Elm Circle is. Those people also should reapply to be an Elm fellow. So if they're not Elm fellows, they would reapply in the next cycle uh, to try to get the Elm fellowship once again. But they get some of the benefit of the program if they can make it. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, I, I think, you know, this is this is a very rich conversation, you know, we because I mean, I, I'm sure there are people in, in early career in fellows and training segment who are craving for a discussion like this, you know, to be put in, in the format that it's going to be put in, which is a which is a podcast format. So I'm not going to, you know, we are way over time, but I'm going to just keep talking. Uh, and we could probably break it into, into, into two episodes. But, you know, I think um, it's it's a good point for me to discuss with you how to evaluate the trajectory of one's career. 
So, you know, I think, and yeah. cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, roughly this is what I've heard from, you know, from mentors and from others around me, you know, early career is anywhere in, within the first seven years, right? That's how even the ACC defines it is early career. Early career professionals are within the yeah, first. I think people talk about seven, seven, seven to ten years, uh, typically early career. I'm not sure the exact cutoff for ACC, but truth be told, it's a subjective thing. I think your first ten years, you're still building. Um, I think I think I would say ten years, and then the next ten to fifteen to twenty years is your mid career. Yeah. So how, at what point in, in, in these years, you know, cause you know, it's certainly, it's, it's a long road to become an interventional cardiologist, right? It's college, medical school, residency, fellowship, and then a subspecialty or advanced fellowships, which add on a couple of years. So it's, it's a long road. Um, and, and then you're starting out and you want to give yourself, you know, X, Y, Z amount of years at one point, at one point in time, you know, both clinically and academically, you think, uh, you know, each one of us should then, um, you know, just take a step back and self-reflect and, and objectively try to quantify where the trajectory is heading. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, uh, first of all, I think people should be doing that all the time. Yeah. I don't think this is yeah. one point. Yeah. I think you have to self-reflect all the time. I think the first uh, thing that people make a mistake in is that that they don't usually um, they don't usually look to see what they're actually good at and what they would what would make them happy, you know. And so there was an article that came out recently with TCTMB MD about structural fellowship and that there's no jobs for that. Well, that's because everybody who came out of international cardiology wanted to do structural fellowship, and I, for many years, advised people maybe not to do that. Um, you know, there's lots of room to grow uh, uh, into a structural list and to do some of the structural procedures. You actually need that fellowship. Um, I think there's a lot of peer pressure to do it. And then problem with cardiology today, and I wrote that in my tweet, is that out of fear and left to their own devices, a fellow will keep on acquiring skills. But that doesn't mean they're actually good at anything. They're acquiring uh, credentials. Uh, by, you know, working another year, by sitting in our procedures. But it doesn't mean anything. It means that you uh, have the cognitive skills and learned about some of these things. Uh, and at the end of the day, no matter where they go, the ones that end up doing the structural procedures uh, and the ones who end up doing coronary procedures, the, the ones who are good at something are the ones who are good at something. So you got to get out there and show that you're actually good. Just doing the fellowship doesn't mean anything. And that's why when you do the fellowship and come out and the hospital already has people doing it, they'll say, well, okay, you have that, but you're not actually good at it, right? You just trained in there. What does that even mean? That means you spent a year, uh, you're ready to start doing something and start your learning curve, which is not so good oftentimes, right? Uh, compared to somebody who's already been doing it. And this is the, this is the fallacy that people don't tell you graduates, which is that they come out and they may be the worst person in the room at something. Um, and so they have to work to become really great at it. And, uh, and from there, it becomes obvious that they should be doing certain procedures. The other thing is that no matter when you come out, there's always new techniques that develop. And eventually, no matter when you come out, you're going to have to relearn something in mid-career. So that's, that's so just because you come out of fellowship and do, uh, even if you didn't do structural, you go somewhere and you demonstrate you're really good and you have a lot of patients who love you and, 
and you're good at building uh, the volume and whatnot, guess what? You're going to get to do the procedures that you want to do because you've demonstrated that you're A, good technically at what they started you at, which is probably coronary. B, you're building practices and patients like you and you follow through. And so, of course, when there's an opening in the team, you're the one they're going to put on the team, not the person who just finished structural fellowship a year ago. And that's what people don't hear and they don't understand. And, and so don't be scared of what you don't know. Be uh, cognizant and, um, and be uh, trusting that you can learn the skill sets and prove to people that you deserve to be on whatever team you want to be on, whether that's a structural team, uh, peripheral team, coronary team, or even within structural. There is no structural team, by the way. At my hospital, we have someone, we have myself and an EP guy doing Watchmen. I do the PFOs. I'm not on the structural team, whatever tablets. There's a valve, there's a, mitric, a separate mitric for the team. Um, but there is no one structural team, and, and there won't be. There'll be people who are good at different procedures, and it's just going to grow from there. Uh, and so eventually, you just have to find what you're good at. So it's a long way of saying that at some point, you have to look back and, and look at your outcomes, uh, not just about how you do them, but how conscientious you are with that, with them, selection criteria with them, how quick you are with them, what people tell you about your hands with them, and be honest with yourself. Can I do it? Can I be successful at this? If I'm not being successful, people actually don't think I am. Maybe the roadblocks in your way are actually their subtle way of saying that you're not so good at that and find something you're good at. Like you said, everybody's a superhero at something. Find that. Find what you're really good at and, and run after it. And, uh, and that's the key. Uh, you know, alcohol ablation, nobody was doing. I did the first few ones at Cornell. And nobody done it at Winthrop. And I got good at it. You get better and better. And, and, and then it can become a whole career. And, uh, you know, shock was nothing. No one was doing any shock. So you become a whole career now. So find what you're good at. Uh, and, uh, and then just, just, just keep going at it. And you might just find that you become passionate about it and you're not so passionate about the things that people say you should be yeah, no, this is, these are, these have been fascinating points. You know, I think what, what we'll do, Dr. Naidu, is we'll, we'll probably end the podcast here. And, um, you know, we still haven't touched upon, you know, more, you know, points like, you know, work-life balance and staying power and, and changing jobs and new skills acquisition. Yeah. We, we sort of talked about new, new skills acquisition a little bit, bit, but, you know, I would like to, you know, take a deep dive into that again. So, you know, what we'll do is we'll have this again. We'll have this, we'll have you back for the second segment of this, uh, this episode. Um, and, you know, sort of talk more, yeah. talk more about, uh, you know, all the, all the other things which are very important, but, you know, thanks. Thank you so much for sparing that, sparing your time. Um, I know how busy you are, uh, you know, for just, you know, really taking a deep dive into these crucial concepts, which are very important and very relevant for anyone, uh, you know, you know, myself included you know, in the, in the early career phase. And, and thank you for all the support and mentorship and friendship that you've provided me. It's been, it's been my honor and my privilege, really. That's uh, my pleasure, Anker. I think it's a, it's a nice discussion. I, I'm glad I had the opportunity to talk frankly about some of these things. But I absolutely agree. Another, uh, another half an hour to an hour session on some of the other aspects. And maybe in the interim, you can set this one out and get people's feedback on what they want to talk about and go from there. Yeah, no, we'll probably be releasing this, I think, um, beginning of September. So, you know, maybe around Skyshock um, or, uh, you know, just, just before TCT. Uh, and then 
I think would be, and then we would be meeting every all all colleagues. Hopefully, everyone would have taken a listen by then, and you know, then either record at TCT the second segment of this episode, or uh, you know, sometime before TCT or immediately after TCT. But it would be a fascinating discussion. I, I hope to. I, I'm. Are you going to be at TCT? Yep, I'll be there. Okay, I'll I'll see you there. I'll see you at TCT. Um, oh, speaking of which, I mean, we're, we're, okay. we're presenting our work together at TCT, so I'll, I'll definitely see you there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it'll be fun. It'll be great. Nice, uh, nice, nice study that you did. Yeah. Thank you, Ankur. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.